Welcome to Danny Goldberg's Rock and Rolls Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared connection, and we are dependent on you, our community, for support. Please go to mindpodnetwork.com slash Danny and either click on the donate button or bookmark the Amazon link through which we get a small percentage of all your purchases. Your support will allow Danny to continue his captivating talks and interviews. Hi, this is Danny Goldberg, and this is the MindPod Network podcast, Rock and Rolls. And today my guest is Rick Giroux. Rick is the author of books including Creating the Work You Love and The Alchemy of Abundance. He's an associate professor of religious studies at Vassar. He left Harvard at the age of 19 to travel in India, later got his PhD at Columbia in Indian language. Most importantly to me, one of his teachers was Hilda Charlton, who I consider my guru and teacher. He's a mystic, a lover of God, the very smart guy. If you want to learn more about what he does, which is quite interesting, you could go to his website, rickgerow.com, R-I-C-K-J-A-R-O-W.com. And on that website, Rick, it says you're a pioneer in the anti-career movement. <laughs> Having just spent the rest of the day at my office and still muddling through a career I think I started when I was 18, what's the anti-career movement? The anti-career movement um, are people who collectively don't want to s- submit to wage slavery, but want to do something in their work that is meaningful for their spirit as well as sustenance. And this is, uh, it's very interesting because this is really taking root all over the world, you know, as, as, as different cultures emerge into like post-industrial civilization, more and more people, um, they just can't imagine themselves working for the man for the rest of their life. Well, I know that, that I, as I said, you're also a mystic besides being a writer and a philosopher. And if God is everywhere, isn't God in the man also? Where is that line drawn? I know I sometimes feel in work I'm in the flow of the spirit and sometimes not, but I don't really know how to define it to other people and sometimes not even to myself. Well, yes, God is everywhere. Uh, hopefully, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> We're betting on it, right? But the the real issue is not if it's if it's a corporate or if you're working in the woods. The real issue is motivation. And if um, if the motivation of my work is fear, like if I don't do this, I won't, you know, I won't survive, or I have to do something that's really against who I am, that's where things get problematic. So there are different ways that you can be the architect of a of kind of some kind of sane work, and I've uh, there's one place where I've kind of discussed four of them. You know, one is um, you start your own business and create your own culture. The other one is you work for people whose mission statements are congruent with your own. Um, the third one, which I'm re- it sounds glib, but I'm really serious, is don't work at all. Um, certain cultures like Islamic culture you're guaranteed at some point in your life you're going to take two years off and go to Mecca 
uh, take some time to reassess. And, and the fourth one is, yes, work, you know, become a professional, get a degree, and hope that you change them before they change you. Okay. okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, you know, part of the thing with a career that could get in the way of being true to your soul, in my experience, can be other people's expectations, the pressures of the world, money, uh, the desire for status, fame, and all that stuff that other people place on you. But part of it, in my case, comes from inside myself, my own um, intoxication with certain external standards. And, uh, you know, how, how, so putting aside the the trying to make wise choices and not everybody has that many choices in terms of how they work or they don't perceive themselves to have choices uh what what, what have you come to think about trying to um uh, balance out the pull of the desire for attention for acclaim for various types of external re re rewards with 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 the inner motivation of of serving god Interesting. Well, for me, what is really significant is what's inside you and being honest to that. Um, if what's inside you is money, then go for it. You know, if what's inside you is fame, then go for it because that's who you are. And you're only valuable when you're being who you are and I'm not talking metaphysically I mean what you you know what you what your desires are and what your heart is about and so when I talk about abundance which is an incredibly misused word but I talk about it in terms of having the abundance to honor what you are in this life and to be really honest with yourself about what's about what's worth working for and so there's there's really it, it, it's not a comparison and it's not about living up to anyone else's standard and the way I see people getting tripped up is somewhere along the line we get convinced that we have to be somebody else and this is as true in a monastery as it is in a corporation really the, the contribution that you have to give it just it flows out of your your natural um, not just talent, but your natural essence. So even in the same profession, you could do the same profession one this way or this way. This way is you're trying to please everybody, and this way, like you're honoring your own uniqueness, and that that's what communicates. So I don't think there's a standard, and I don't believe there's a separation between God and the world. It's about you know, if God made me this way, then let me be this way. If God gave me athletic ability, how could I not use it, for as an example? Mm. Mm. Now, you're teaching at a, at a pretty well-known and prestigious college. And what, what, what are students looking for when they, when they come to your class, as far as you can perceive? Well, again, my, the students who come to my classes are a little, they're not in the center. You know, most people at Vassar are majoring in things like political science or sociology. And when they come to my class, they are kind of interested in how different traditions and different cultures understand what Albert Schweitzer called the elemental questions. Who am I? What am I doing here? 
you know, what's the purpose of all this? And I, I think they're interested in exploring that through other traditions than the ones they were brought up in. So you're teaching mostly Eastern traditions to Western students? Well, uh, one of the things I like about Vassar is I teach Eastern traditions, but I also teach things like yoga in the West. Uh, the I have, have a course called the a meeting between Zen and post-modernity. So I teach a lot of East-West meeting stuff. I do a seminar in dreams. Um, I've kind of been on the vanguard of a movement for what's, of what's called contemplative pedagogy to really bring meditational arts and disciplines into the classroom to make it not just an intellectual experience. So I can I get to do all of these things. It's pretty cool. So you dropped out of Harvard and went to India. Why? Well, if I knew why, I'd be <laughs> <laughs> you know, with the cog scientists. Well, it's a big deal to get into Harvard in the first place. I mean, that's that's the that's the ultimate achievement of a high school student in this country. Yeah, so I think that answers like your first question. I spent so much energy doing what you had to do to get into Harvard that by the time I did, I burned all that up. It was no longer interesting to me. Like, you know, the standard things of success, status, be, you know, been there, done that, now what? So I was sitting at Harvard asking, like, now what? And you were a freshman or a sophomore? I was a freshman. Hmm. And I ran into Ramdas. Hmm. And I, I remember it like it was yesterday. He gave this amazing speech to Harvard students about, quote, making it. Like he, he rhetorically asked, are you making it? Do you have high of his clothes? You know, are you making it? Do you have good grades? And after the whole thing, he said, it turns out that if you think you're making it, you're not really making it all, at all. And it's like someone hit me with a bomb. It was like I, I understood the truth in it, and my life was changed in a second. Hmm. So, you, uh, so you go to India. Where in India did you go to? Well, I went to India through a long, circuitous route. I went through Europe. Um, I went through different ashrams. I went. I, I did a stint with the Hare Krishna people. I went through, and, and I and through them, I wound up in Brindaban in India, the holy city of Krishna. That's mm -hmm. where it started. That's where Krishna is believed to have lived. Is that right? Yes, that's where he grew up. Yes. And then I wound up in the Himalayas, and I wound up in Benares. And, and, and like India was like a playground for me. I, I love being there. I love the, the multiplicity of it. I love the sensoriness of it. And I love the idea that here is a culture where for thousands of years, at least rhetorically, seeking God, seeking self-realization is a respectable thing to do. Mm, yes. So just turn back the clock a minute to the Hare Krishna people. I've always been fascinated by them because I I was certainly very affected by the Beatles and by George Harrison's interest in the Krishna people and um, I also was scared of the Krishna people because I would see them at airports with their funny haircuts dancing around and that seemed to me like a, a terrible outcome for my my life so and yet at the same time when they would talk about just saying the word Krishna once could change your soul and your life. I was quite encouraged by that because I felt I could say the name Krishna once. And I'm curious what it was like up close and, and, and what your experience was with them. There's an old story which says that the devil and his friend were walking down the street 
and his friend saw someone across the street pick up a piece of truth and he and he said to the the devil are, are you going to do anything about that i mean he's you know are you going to stop him you know and the devil said don't worry i'm going to let him organize it mm-hmm. and that was the i think the problematic with uh the christian people you, you know when whenever you organize a spiritual path in in a in a very institutional way you have to appeal to the lowest common denominator and that's kind of what happened like the only way so it lost a lot of the subtlety of the tradition it lost a lot of the um, nuances of what is bhakti you know what it, you know what are all these spiritual practices and it became kind of rigid and fundamentalist mm-hmm. um, and it suffered for it what was good about it? What it must have attracted you enough to spend more than a minute. What was good and what was unusual in those days was the dedication, uh, truthfulness, and integrity of the teacher and the teaching. Um, there weren't, you know, this wasn't a way of how can I aggrandize myself in the name of God. You know, it wasn't. You know, one of the biggest traps in the '60s was the the it wasn't a belief it was ingrained in americans that if you did yoga you did yoga and thing and meditation in order to achieve a higher state of consciousness i.e. what i achieved taking lsd and in that in that mindset there's an inherent egotism that is a serious block it doesn't let you get past yourself Tell more about that egotism. I don't quite understand what you mean. It's that, uh, just to give you an example, and I love him dearly, but I, you know, as a professor, I have the right to criticize anyone. So, like, and, and I, always, I always, always thought that maybe Ramdas was just doing this, you know, to attract people where they're at. But Ramdas always talked about getting high, and I want to be high all the time, and drugs won't keep me high all the time, but meditation will. And the problem is, even if you get to Mount Everest you're still going to be afraid and alone because you haven't broken through the heart. Mm. And and the breakthrough in the heart is, dare I say, it's the consciousness of prayerfulness and service and being part of something greater. And, the, you know, the, the Krishna tradition understood that. They weren't what I call elevationists, people using spirituality to go to, a you know, some spiritual penthouse somewhere. You know, they understood that you can't manipulate consciousness, that you are the servant of consciousness. And that's what I think was the great value. Mm. The other really interesting value, and you don't see this unless you go to India, was how a practice of spirituality can integrate into the arts, into cooking, into daily life on such a fundamental level that it's no longer something you're doing, but it's everything you do. And, and they understood that. Now, I know in your study you have a picture of Bhaktivedanta, who was the founder of the movement. Did you, did you spend any time with him? No, I didn't. And I was probably lucky that I didn't because I never got hooked into that guru trip. Right. But uh, I will say that, um, you know, he was genuinely, um, you know, he was a believer, he was authentic, and he risked everything. I mean, how many people could you imagine at 72 years old? With, with, with no money, 
would walk into a, a steamship company and ask for passage to the United States. I mean, so he had incredible drive and integrity. Um, but I, I really did not have that connection with him. Right. right. So did, did you find a particular teacher in India who you felt was it for you or 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 were you just sort of touring the culture what what was what, well, I, was I, there an was there a climax to that phase well i found i found two teachers who really spoke to me but not that they were it and uh one of them was named Sripad baba and he lived in brindaban he was an avadut he had no affiliation so i really liked that he was a free being right but, um, you know, Sripad means at the feet of Sri. Sri is Radha, the goddess of Vrindavan. And, and, and so he had the bhav, he had the feeling level of devotion. But um, I think I liked him because he was so cool. And the other thing I learned from him, which I later learned from Hilda, uh, very much like Hilda, he did not teach doctrinally, but he, t he taught situationally. Mm -hmm. He had no teaching. It was where you are and where he is and what's happening in the moment. So, for example, I once decided one morning that I was going to give up my doctoral dissertation because uh, I didn't know enough Sanskrit. And he just happened to show up you know, that afternoon. So what are you doing? And so I gave up my dissertation today. And he said, why? I said, because they're eight-year-olds who know more Sanskrit than me. And the beautiful thing about Sripad was like, he wouldn't just talk. He would like go inside until he got the answer. And so after a couple of minutes, he said, you know, he said, that may very well be true, but you have something to offer that nobody else can because it's from your unique experience. So you do that. And then he said, and when and where it manifests, that's up to Bhagawan. That's up to, you know, to God. So that really, he really inspired me. Um, also, I, I saw him live very well on nothing. Mm -hmm. And I also, and this might sound really unusual, but... I had the opportunity to see him sleep. He was known for not sleeping. He wouldn't sleep for weeks. And, you know, in India, sometimes at night you sleep outside. So I'm on one roof, and I saw him down on another roof once sleeping. And I never saw anyone asleep like this, like not a muscle moving, not a twitch of an eye, like totally in the center of the universe. It was inspiring. And you said there was a second teacher in India who also spoke to you? Yeah, the sec and this is really interesting because the second teacher is actually a Westerner, a gentleman known as Gyanananda Giri, who is still up in the Himalayas. He's in his 80s now. When he was 19, he received the teachings of Yogananda. Hmm. And he, he was so taken with it that he walked from Switzerland to India. And they stopped him at the border. They said, what do you want to do? He says, I'm here to be a sadhu. And they said, do you have, this is like 1940, I don't know, do you have a guru? And he said, yes. And they said, come in. Huh. So, um, Gyanananda is a beautiful combination of knowledge and devotion, and, um, and he communicates um, very well in many languages, and he, he knows who he is. He's a yogi. You know, uh, when I first met him, he said to me, he said, I'm a yogi. He said, you're a spiritual ambassador. <laughs> you move around, but I'm bringing this up because the, like the first moment I met him, I had this deja vu, and I, you know, you're always looking for the you know, perfect lover, the perfect guru. I said, this is it, you know, and I walked back in. He lived in a little hut up there. I said, excuse me, but what does it mean when you see somebody and you feel like you've seen them before? And he said, ah, it's very good. You're getting to the source. 
So I spent three, four lovely days with him in the Himalayas. I, you know, and one night I had a dream. And in that dream, we were driving in a car and the car crashed. And I got out of that car saying, are you all right? Are you all right? And, you know, it's an obvious dream, but it took me seven years to process that that wasn't my path to stay in the Himalayas. And like he, he wanted me to come back. Tripod wanted me to come back. They said, you know, we'll give you a visa for life, you know, da 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 And um, that's, and that kind of led me to Hilda because, you know, Hilda always had the gumption to, to do what she felt she had to do, no matter what anybody said, whether it was Sai Baba or Yogananda. So I really, I appreciated that. But so when I first encountered you, you were on stage at Hilda speaking. You had somehow met her. I'd been going for a couple of years. And were you at that time still in, at Columbia? Were you getting your doctorate then? Yeah. Or what, no. what were you doing when you met Hilda? When I actually met Hilda, I was selling peanuts in the street. <laughs> and um, I went over to her house somehow and she said to me, kid, what do you want? She called everyone kid. And, yes, she and, did. And I, and I said, well, Hilda, I just want God. And she said, she you know, folded her arms and said, well, that's very nice, kid, but what are you going to do with your life? You know? And I said, well, I don't know, Hilda. You know, I sell peanuts. And she looked at me and she said, you will, you're going to be a professor of Sanskrit. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I said, okay. And Now, just stop for a moment. So you had just met her that day? Yeah. First, that was my friend. No, I'd gone to a meeting, but the first. Oh, so you had gone to a meeting. Yeah, and it was my first personal meeting with her. Right, right. And um, yeah, so that's kind of how it went. Down. So she knew you were you had gone to her meeting and yes, and, and yeah. had that interest. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and she, um, I think she took a lot of interest in me because I had been through like the guru trip already, and I wasn't enamored by it. So she didn't have to deal with that with me. She could just work with me. I wasn't going, oh, hell, you know, I just, I would listen to what she said. And, you know, and so, um, and the other thing that was, as I told you, I did not have a personal relationship with Bhaktivedanta, and I did have one with Hilda, and that meant a lot to me. Right. right. But then I went, you know, I started going to Columbia as a, uh, a you know, elder, relatively older college student in my mid-twenties when I met Hilda. And the reason I went, one, I really wanted to learn this stuff academically, but two, they paid me. So kill two birds with one stone, as they say. Yes, or, yes. Or scattered two birds with one stone. <laughs> so so it, it seemed that. to me that, that you were you were trying to balance uh, the ability to intellectualize and express and communicate these ideas with being the ideas. I had to. It, it, that gets back to where we started because that's who I am. Like in my, in my particular karmic makeup, I have a mental verbal component. Right. Right. You know, I used to hang out with both Hilda and Orestes, this great healer, mm. and they would do things like put your head on a bowl of water and tell you all this stuff about yourself or Hilda would just go into trance and start telling you all these things and I loved it but I knew it wasn't me I right knew, I knew I needed a kind of um, a mental basis to jump off of and so uh, and obviously the universe agreed because the doors just opened for me I didn't struggle to get through Columbia and all right this just happened to me but it was um, it was a challenge 
and um, a challenge that that took a lot of um, I don't know what the word is. I guess balancing is good, but also accepting the different sides of oneself. And I was fortunate that I have teachers who accepted that. Like I used to go to Orestes and everyone would be healing and all night and we'd take a break. And I was a student, so during the break I'd like open my books and start, you know, checking up stuff. And people would complain and say, hey, Orestes, he's breaking the energy. And Orestes would say, no, no, that's what Mysterik does. All right, well, just because I, I, I don't know if everybody listening knows who Orestes was. Could you tell a little bit about him and how you came Orestes. to know him? Orestes was a Cuban shamanic healer known as a santo and we met him through Hilda uh, over the years whenever anybody came to Hilda's who had some serious I would say psychic problem Hilda would say we got to take him to Orestes and I never knew what she was talking about until one day I went with her and Orestes was this um, giant mountain of a man um, we used to sit behind this desk with a crucifix and a bowl of water and you'd come in and he'd put your head on the bowl of water and he'd tell you all this stuff and he he would work on he was a healer he, he could heal you I, I saw him miraculously help people walk who couldn't walk um, you know bring people out of schizophrenia and I, you know he he was a hereditary healer it was in his family tradition mm-hmm. Do you know how she first encountered him? Yes, I do. It was through Margie. It was through a woman who was the mother of these two Indian girls who lived in the house where Hilda first came, you know, to stay in America. And yes. And she knew him, and then she met him. And once she met him, they both loved each other and respected each other and helped each other out. Right. Right. So again, a lot of people listening come to this conversation through Ramdas he had the mass appeal right be here now you know deeply touched me certainly I I came to this conversation through LSD and then listening to Ramdas Hilda by her own design had a much smaller public footprint uh, I, I I'd like I, one of the things I'm trying to do in this podcast is have different people who were students of Hilda talk about her uh, so that there's some record of impressions of what sh- she meant to people. Because one of the things I, I, I strongly felt is that she worked differently with each individual. And uh, it always reminded me of those old prairie schoolhouses where they had everyone from kindergarten up to 12th grade in one room with one teacher. Uh, so, so would you mind talking a little about your impressions of her? Well, I could talk for hours, but I'll, I'll just start and say Hilda was an extremely complex individual. She came through things that some people can only imagine. I was once sitting on her couch where I spent a lot of number of years, and she had some visitors, and they were you know she was chatting them up, and she had them go get a cup of tea, and all of a sudden she turned to me, she said, "Kid, they have no idea what hell I had to go through to get here." So you know she was a woman in a man's world. Yes. You know, she was gifted spiritually, probably from birth, but at least in her teens on. She went on a journey when nobody else was doing it. And what I really um, resonated with about Hilda is that she had multiple lineages. She was aligned with people known or a, a, a lineage known as the Masters of the White Lodge on the astral. 
She was aligned with Nityananda, the founder of Siddha Yoga. She was aligned with Sai Baba. She was aligned with so many different... She knew Yogananda. She knew Yogananda. Um, she, she was aligned with yogis and, and divine mothers and Catherine Coleman from the lineage of Christian healing. And I think part of the remarkable thing, like Hilda was like a, a living radio antenna. She would pull in these vibrations from all over the world and from all space and time. And then she could bring them into the service of humanity. And that was her ultimate purpose. Hilda always said, if you want to work with the masters, you need to put yourself at the surface of humanity. That was, you know, that was her um, kind of credo. But the other thing that I thought, and you mentioned it, it was remarkable, like Sripad, who I met in India, Hilda's teaching was largely situational. And, and you had, and she had the people, you know, you know, she has small footprint, but large footprint. Hundreds of people came to her meeting for years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, but the people who kind of got in her door were the people who kind of had, there was an agreement. Like, if I am your teacher, then you're going to let me teach, which means it's not always so pretty. I'm going to point out the things that you're doing and the games that you're playing. And she did this in the most remarkable way because it was entertaining but it was also spot on. Uh, so just as a strange example, there was someone who used to go to Hilda's named David Ganesha, and he looked like mm. Ganesha. Yeah, he yeah. Huge body, huge blonde hair, you know, and, you know, open heart, open mind. Always had a grin on his face, yeah, yes. Everything. And one day he went to Hilda's house, um, and Hilda wasn't home. And he sat in front of her door and meditated for a couple of hours, and she still wasn't home. So he put a rose in front of her door and he left. Well, for the next, I don't know how many years, Hilda would never let Ganesh forget to, David, if you hadn't put that rose in the door, you might have got somewhere. But your blooming old ego, you had to prove to me that you'd been there. That's how she taught. Right. She, she would take the, the rug of your ego out from under you and you had to be, you know, if you were ready to receive it, then you got a lot of grace. The very first Hilda meeting I ever went to, the, the little meeting, little 50 people, she said, now we're going to meditate. And I said, okay, I got ready to meditate. And I scratched my nose. I don't know if you heard that one. And all of a sudden she points to me and says, you, we don't move here. We don't scratch, you know, get up and sit on the side. That was my <laughs> first, like, and I knew I could, when she was, when she was talking to me, I could feel the vibration. I could feel I was getting grace. And so I had no... You know, I didn't have to fight back or anything. It was beautiful, but that's how she taught. She taught situationally. Yeah, and she was she was, and I appreciated the fact that she willingly, consciously decided to live in like one of the heaviest places on the planet, New York City. And she didn't say, "Oh, you have to be pure. You have to go breathe pure mountain air." She would teach you how to hold your center while you were on the phone while you were making change, you know, while you were driving a taxi cab, which I did. And I don't know anybody else who was doing that in that way. That was, to me, what was really the remarkable thing about Hilda, like how to do it in the midst of chaos. I just was been reading a lot about Nicholas Rorich, who uh, was a painter 
uh, you know, late 19th century and first half of the 20th century was very much aligned with the masters of the Great White Lodge and Theosophy. Someone who Hilda referred to as a master to someone else, but I believe that she said he was a master. And um, he was someone who was friends with political leaders here in the U.S. and in India and had a very colorful, interesting life that I urge people to explore. But one of the things about Rorich is that he also had tremendous obstacles in his life, was constantly getting in trouble with the uh, Chinese government, with the Russian government, with the American government, with investors who uh, betrayed him, uh, uh, was criticized a lot, and, and a lot of his dreams did not come true on the physical plane in his lifetime. You know, he had envisioned uh, this peace pact, he was a great believer in peace, and then World War II happened. And I think of Martin Luther King getting assassinated, I think of Gandhi getting assassinated, uh, I also remember I was talking to you uh, sometime last year and you were saying Satya Sai Baba, who many of us and Hilda viewed as an incarnation of, of uh, uh, divine incarnation. Some believed Krishna. And yet, as his body got older, he was in a, a wheelchair. And th there is some uh, cognitive dissonance that I have sometimes because I, I like form. I, I always... Uh, admire people who can go to the formless, but my own mind and temperament and emotions is more devotional and connects through love of form first. And uh, But form and human forms, there, there's also the human part of it and, and how to recognize the divinity in a person and understand their humanity, which can include human mistakes. And I know a lot of people, I just had lunch today with someone who had been a student of Hilda who still harbors some resistance to her because of certain things that happened 25 or 30 years ago. How do you balance the humanness of these beings and their divinity? And uh, what can we learn from that? Wow, that's quite a, quite a, quite a statement. Quite I'm sorry, a, a long one, but I... I like to think of these people as like my mother or father. You know, after you, you know, somewhere between the age of two and four or, you know, five maybe, you sometimes it dawns on you that your parents aren't perfect. And, you know, you, you know, you revolt against that. But in the end, they're still your parents. And, yeah. and they, they, and that, that's the greatest thing. And, um, that's how I look at it. Um, you know, and I also think that's the lesson of Jesus, that form always winds up on a cross. That's what the lesson is, but that doesn't mean it's not valuable. And uh, one of the greatest for me, um, one of my teachers, uh, the late James Hillman, has one of the greatest, for me, pieces on the crucifixion I ever heard. And he says basically that the, the real symbolism and meaning of the crucifixion is that if you've been betrayed and you can still love, then you've made it. Because in the end, you know, you could argue Jesus feels betrayed by God. If you've been betrayed and you can still love, then you've made it. And I think what the, 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 the diminution of form teaches us to release all the infantile idolatries that we hold despite our better nature. You know, we're looking for the perfect, and even the... Uh, Krishna, the great Krishna got killed by a hunter's arrow, <laughs> you know, the highest and the lowest. Um, the whole game of accepting the transience of everything and, you know, Rumi had, you know, Shams left and would never come back and ultimately Rumi had to accept that. 
and there's something about the deep accepting of loss and imperfection and fragility that to me opens our hearts beyond belief and into a, a deeper, you know, what they call praying or love. And that, that to me is the love. All right. We, I, I want to just spend maybe five more minutes. You've, you've, you've packed a lot into a short amount of time, and I'm, I'm really grateful for it. I'm, we're also both sitting here in the United States in 2015, and we're both people who pay attention to the media and what's happening in the world. And um, we're in the middle of this presidential cycle. We're in the middle of financial instability. Uh, the, the Pope just visited America, and there's this refugee crisis all over the world. Um, how do you integrate some of these things with, without be a, 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 into into the more eternal flow that you're alluding to? There's there's a beautiful text that Robert Thurman translated called um, Asanga's Teaching of Great Compassion, Mahayana Buddhist text. And one of the things Asanga says is, no matter who people are, no matter what they do, remember, and everyone is simply trying to be happy. You know, they're just going about it by their own lights. And Asanga also says, in any group of people, they're going to be like one-third who you can't stand, one-third who you just completely oblivious to, and one-third who you really resonate with. But what he says is, don't just connect with the people who you resonate with, you know, you know op that openness to everyone, because I, you know, just like, just like uh, I once heard that Ramdas put a picture of Casper Weinberger and then George W. Bush on his altar. Yeah, I have seen Republican photos of Republicans on Ramdas's altar, that is true. That's what I was thinking of during the Republican debates. I was thinking of a sangha. I, I was thinking these people really want to be happy. I was thinking how much anger and suffering they're holding. And, you know, no one's a bad person. Everyone's just trying to be happy. And one of the things that um, that is very hard to accept is our own finitude, that we can't, like, take a flag and cover the earth and save the day. Uh, but we can... Um, connect with the people who the universe sends to us and be as open and loving as we can and and from my perspective the planet earth has in in recent lifetimes has not been a picture of dharma you know it's been conflict and war and violence and oppression that we got born into this and um I think it's very important to be open and work with this because this is who we are. The people say, oh, it's all love and none of this matters. I see that as a defense mechanism. But on the other hand, the people say, oh, this is terrible and we, we got to you know, bring in the cavalry and have a revolution. Otherwise, you, I think you're missing the point uh, because the point is all of this is happening right now. And um, it's not about... Um, saving the earth because there are millions, a gazillion earths. But it's about opening to the situation with as much integrity and love as possible. And, you know, there was one person in history, I never met him, but even Moses was astonished by Rabbi Akiva because he was the greatest Jewish mystic. Hmm. And he went along with the four, you know, mystics to the Holy of Holies. There were four of them. 
and three of them came out either insane, killed themselves, or apostate. Akiba was the only one who made it through. And for hundreds of years afterwards, the, the rabbis asked, what did he see? How, how come he made it? And what they say is, what Akiba saw was all this. He saw trees, he saw grass, he saw, he saw the world. And everyone else had an expectation of what it should be. Akiba saw reality. And what was his fate? You know, such a great rabbi, learned lover of God. His fate was to be flayed alive by the Romans. Mm. And in one of the, you know, one of the texts when Moses asked God, like, how could you do this? And, and God just says, be quiet. Right. And, and I thought for years, you know, what's the, and it's become clear to me that, like, Akiva was modeling the incredible freedom, openness, emptiness, purity, whatever word you want to use, that there was no more pushback against suffering, no more fear of loss. Everything becomes God's grace. Hmm. And so, and the Romans couldn't understand why he's so joyful when he's getting tor you know, tortured. And I'm not advocating anybody do this, because you know, I don't know anybody like him. But I think what he models is that we don't push the suffering and hatred of the world away, but that we hold it in our body and in our life and dialogue with it and really and really be with it. And that to me is is the real challenge of a human being. You know, you ask, you know, careers, I do this work with careers and all how did Hilda's career really you know, one of the how she how does she sustain herself? She, when she was at Sai Baba's there was an American woman who was sick, dying, and Hilda didn't ask anything. She ministered to that woman. She helped that woman die and helped that woman through that process. And she wound up giving Hilda a, a, a legacy, you know, which, which helped sustain her along with Social Security for the rest of her life. Huh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, and I never, you know, Hilda had this ability. One ability was to look at you and see your potential. And, but the other one was to like be, you know, not push away um, the suffering and what was going on, and that to me is the Bodhisattva vow. Yeah, yeah. Well, before we end this, I know you've been spending a lot of time in Brazil in the last few years, and have found a current of energy there that you feel yeah. is consistent or part of this work that you've been doing your your, yeah. your your life. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and teach us about it? I'll put it in this context. In in the 60s and 70s, maybe 80s, the, the movement was the meeting of East and West. I feel that now the great movement in culture is the meeting of North and South. That it's, you know, we've learned what we have to learn from the yoga traditions, but what the earth-based shamanic traditions of Brazil, Peru, and many other places, Costa Rica, what they teach us how to integrate the spirit with the land and with the waters and with the with the environment and and with the um, the divinities within our midst. And it's a bhakti, it's a flow of love, but it's a flow that integrates not only with the earth but with her substances, with her herbs, with her waters, with her trees. And I really feel that this is a lesson that we need to learn. Just like the Brazilians are taking what they, what they need to take from American industry and then trying to create a new type of commercial culture, not the old type. So we're, we're, 
we're meeting each other east and west north and south and I remember one one conference one talk Hilda gave where she said she said in the future as this whole thing works itself out everybody's going to be gold mm-hmm. in color so I, I think there's a, a tr- tremendous th- thing that we need we're learning from the earth-based tradition this includes Native American traditions and it's not it's not this romantic wow they really have a thing it's it's understanding and like humbling ourselves before their good sense that have kept them 10, 20, 30, 40,000 years living sustainably. And, and that's the uh, interconnection that I do. Cool. Well, thank you. Uh, when we were talking about Hilda, we were, of course, talking about Hilda Charlton. And uh, she did not take money. You, she didn't charge for the classes. There was no organization to join. And uh, I learned a little bit in this conversation about one of the ways she was able to do it, but the real way was the Divine Mother of the Universe planned it that way. Uh, there's more information about her on a website called hildacharlton.com, where a number of her students have posted hundreds of tapes of her lectures and some uh, different memories of her and some of her writings and photos of her. And for more about Rick's work, rickgiraud.com, I, I thank you story that you don't have to you don't have to record but i'm going to tell it um before you before yeah go you, all right there was uh there was this guy with, who used to work with hilda named danny goldberg i was once in a circle with hilda danny and like a few other people and we did a meditation and hilda turned to each person and asked them what was going on in their life and someone said oh hilda i'm seeing angels and someone was talking about their meditation and then it came to, to danny and um, Danny was a little bit, he, he stuttered a little bit because what was on his mind at the moment was not how many angels he was seeing, but a, a, a very significant business deal which was on the table for what in those days was a significant amount of money. And Hilda stopped the whole thing and she pointed at Danny and said, kid, I want to hear you say it out loud. I want to hear you say it with strength. I want to hear you say it with power. A million dollars, kid, say it. <laughs> and, and, and the point was she supported, it wasn't that, you know, money was just another form of energy. Yeah. So it wasn't that she was anti-money or pro-money, but she, she could work with the energy and whatever energy you were working with, she would support that. And she... She told Danny, she said, you know, you're, you know, you have a great work to do and you're going to do great work in the world. And if you try to like, you know, your job isn't to be like anybody else, but your job is to be like you and say, and do it with power, kid, and just see what happened. So I was there. I saw that. I remember that day mm. and it stayed with me that she had the generosity and openness of spirit to support who you are not who she wanted you to be not not through an organization's idea right support who you are and you're doing god's work well as i said it was a classroom with people of all levels and ages (laughs) i never knew where i fit in but i was sure glad to be there and uh, i still still am every single day thank you so much rick for doing this great to talk to you god bless bless. thanks Thanks for listening to Danny Goldberg's Rock and Rolls Hour. We appreciate your support and hope you will continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash Danny.